0: All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Neil Armstrong reporting the roll and
1: pitch program, which puts Apollo 11 on a proper heading. FM. this is the void show thank you so much for joining us today thank you so much for being here i really always say that um, it is an amazing thing to have you around it is an amazing thing to have you listening and i am so excited today because um, i do have one of my favorite astrophysicists, um, uh, dr paul uh, dr paul m sutter who's an astrophysicist you know i'm um, a research professor in institute of advanced computational science at stony brook university um, I mean, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Doctor Paul. How are you?
2: Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I've been, I was looking at your your bio. I mean, I could really uh, probably end this day speaking about you. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about maybe um, your early upbringing, your early childhood, and how you really got into astrophysics?
2: Yeah, it, it's funny. Is like uh, as a kid, I, I loved astronomy. I loved astronomy books. I loved learning, uh, but I also loved learning about uh, dinosaurs and and all sorts of different kinds of science. And uh, I just I just remember as a kid just absorbing uh, all sorts of books, just being super curious. But I never ever made the connection. Uh, to like me being a scientist. I never realized that I could be a scientist. I grew up in rural Midwest, in a small town. I just, I don't know, I just never, I always thought science was for other people. I always thought that science was for smarter people. I always thought that science was for for somebody else. And I went into college to get a degree in computer science, because I was still a nerd and I loved computers. And my original plan was to be like a software engineer for NASA. Hmm. And um, in college, I continued reading books and science books and physics books and uh, biology books. And I remember uh, my third year of college uh, taking an elective, an optional course in astronomy because it seemed like fun and it's something Hmm. I had an interest in. And fell in love with the subject. I remember just a few weeks into the class, talking with the professor, and the professor took me aside and said, "Yeah, if if you want, you can be uh, a scientist. You can be a businessist. Mm-hmm. You you can switch majors if you want. You can you can make this your career. Yeah. And it's like a light bulb went off. I realized like, oh, I can actually make this." My job. I can I actually do something with this with this interest, this passion of mine. So less than a week later, I switched majors to physics with absolutely no plan. I didn't know what I would do with a physics degree. Hmm. And uh, but I never looked back and and I'm glad I did.
1: Wow, and, and I think that's amazing. You know, you, you mentioned the fact that you thought science was for smart people. I think I think that's really what happens a lot. You know, a lot of people think that science is really for a certain kind kind of people, but you became really good even at, at, at even explaining complex science, science to, to the public, right?
2: I, I, yes, it's, uh, this is another interesting career move. I, I ended up getting a bachelor's in physics, then getting a, going into graduate school at the university of Illinois at Urbana Champaign, uh, getting a PhD in physics there. Then I went off to Paris for a three-year postdoctoral research position there and then uh, to Italy for a two year position there. And in all those years, I was on a full research track. I was writing papers, I was in collaborations, I was giving conference talks. uh, And giving conference talks and preparing presentations was always my favorite part. And I, in the background, I had always, I had an interest in outreach. I would do school events. I would do little science fairs here and there. Oh, But I always had this background interest. And then about seven years ago, when I was in the middle of my second postdoc position, I decided to start a podcast. And just out of nowhere, I was just like, yeah, I'll I'll just do it. I'll give it a shot. This is risky. This is new. It's a little bit scary, but I'll give it a shot. And... That was Ask a Spaceman. That was my first major outreach project. And I just bought a microphone. I looked up how to make a podcast. I read all about all of it uh, on my own. And without any training whatsoever. And I just recorded a bunch of episodes. And it ended up getting a really big following very quickly. I was very surprised how well it did. And from there, I was able to create a bunch of new opportunities. I started writing articles. I started uh, writing books. I started hosting uh, YouTube shows. I started hosting TV shows. And it just grew. And the more and more I did it, the more and more I was enjoying it. And slowly over the course of a few years, I pivoted from a purely research track to doing more outreach and communication.
1: Hmm. No, I think that's really great. I mean, I've read some of the, the, the books you wrote and I mean, I, I know you write for space.com as well and so I'm a fan of that as well. I've watched a lot of your YouTube videos so that's that's, that's really great. But when I sent you an email, I said we were going to speak about you know the, the art of science and so I just want to hear your views about could art and science really be related and especially for the fact that you've just spoken about you can write, you know, you're an author, you can speak and so just all that creativity. Can you say something about uh, science and art? Absolutely, I
2: think science and art are intertwined in in many, many, many uh, surprising ways. First, we can look at what a typical scientist does. And when we think of a typical scientist, we think of the, the analytical mind, we think of the scientific method, we think of a lot of mathematics and logic, and all of that is is indeed very, very important. But the day-to-day operations of what a scientist does and what makes a successful scientist a scientist involves a lot of communication, there's a lot of emails, there's a lot of coordinating, there's a lot of presentations, there's a lot of paper writing, there is a lot of interpersonal skills of, of having to build collaborative networks and work with people and build teams, and there is so much creativity involved in the scientific process. And when when we design an instrument or, or just to design an instrument or an experiment, like we like we have this question of you know, how what's the mass of this particle. What happens when this interaction, what's causing this? We have to be very clever with our experimental design. We have to come up with something that's that's never existed before. We have to be inventors uh, to answer these kinds of questions because no one has asked these questions before. No one's answered these questions before. we have to be incredibly creative and then when we get the results when we get the data back it's just numbers on a plot we have to interpret these numbers we have to tell a story of these numbers we have to explain them we have to understand what's going on and the interpretation of the data so that we can have an answer to talk about is is wildly creative like think of Think of general relativity and, and, mm. and most of einstein's genius in general relativity uh wasn't in the mathematics but in the the conception of it in, in being able to think of of how bending space-time can lead to gravity like who thinks of that <laughs> or, or all of quantum mechanics all the weirdness and wonderfulness happening in the quantum world someone had to sit down And think of that and imagine that and play with that idea in their heads. Like, that's an enormous amount of creativity. And so scientists use what we would call artistic skills every single day in their normal day-to-day jobs. It is a blending of the analytics, a blending of the of the computation and the mathematics along with the beautiful creativity that gives us that gives us modern science and the power of modern science. And then on the other hand, um, as you mentioned, I collaborate with artists. I work with artists a lot. Um, I am surprised. (laughs) Always surprised. Every time I sit down and work with an artist and we come up with a project, how analytical they are, how mathematical they can be, how how structured and organized their thinking is, how they view the world through a particular lens, and that lens gives them insights and power uh, to understand the world around them. I see scientific skills in every artist i meet every dancer every musician every poet i, I see that the, the scientific skill set there and, and i think man these people would be be great scientists they would have, they'd be very successful scientists wow. and then yeah it's it's it really is true and when it comes to science and art like it's always presented as these um yeah, you know, opposing forces that you can either look at the world through a scientific lens or you can look at the world through an artistic lens. But I see science and art as two sides of the same coin, like like electricity and magnetism, like like mass and energy. Uh, these are really just two things, two expressions of the same thing, which is mm. an abundant curiosity about the world around us and an overwhelming desire to. To understand it, to put it on human terms, to to relate to it, to connect to it, and yeah, the scientists and the artists have different tools, but we have the same objective, which is to understand the world about
1: mm-hmm. us. I think that's so great. And and when you're speaking about you know the uh, science and artists, I mean, I watched a, a, your TED talk, and it was just amazing on how you spoke of you know the science of astronomy, the stars, and you related that with with people dancing, right?
2: Exactly. Exactly. So this TED Talk, uh, which was about a project I was working on in Columbus, uh, and now I have another project. Uh, I live in uh, New York, the New York area now. Yeah. And I work with a dance company here, Siren Modern Dance. And as an example of this exploration and this mutual goal of understanding, uh, we have a project called TikTok, which is a performance using music. And movement and Hmm. uh, narration to explore the nature of time. So I get up on stage, I talk about time as a physicist. Uh, The dancers are involved in my presentation, which is absolutely beautiful and so much fun to be a part of. And, but there's only so much that physics can say about time. Hmm. There's, we do know some things about time, but we're also generally confused. And so there are some things I can say as a physicist about the nature of time, but there's so much more to the nature of time than what I can say as a scientist. There is memory and grief and anticipation and hope and loss and rhythms and and just, just so many facets of this common everyday experience that science especially physics is just silent on hmm. but dance is not silent about it and the dancers and the choreographer Kate st amand was able to bring this out of the dancers yeah. uh, an exploration of the nature of time uh an, an expression of that common journey an expression of that common a mystery of this thing that surrounds us and fills our everyday life and yet, we really can't pin down in a simple equation or even a simple sentence. And so, so right there, we're able to uh, use the lens of science and the lens of art to to explore something that we're all fundamentally curious about.
1: Hmm. That, that's that's so beautiful. I was speaking with a mathematician um, early today, uh, and you know, and I even asked them of. And, uh, you know, I'd want to say that you, you kept emphasizing this thinking, you know, this way of thinking, this way of viewing the world. And they are mathematician, And so they kind of spoke about of how that logical thinking has sort of also crept in into their real life. So I want to know this kind of thinking, you know, as a scientist, is it what you learn? Um, um, is it, is it helping? Is it a good thing? What do you think about that, that, that thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the scientific worldview, I, I truly
2: believe the scientific worldview is, is a very powerful way to approach the world. Because uh, the goal of science is to cut out all the nonsense. The goal of science is, is really, is science itself is a branch of philosophy. It's a kind of philosophy. It's a philosophy designed to answer questions about the natural world it's it's a philosophy designed from the ground up to answer questions about how things work and to work to not uh, let ourselves be fooled to not let our own biases uh, creep in for our own preconceived notions to to misguide us it's it's designed to let experiment and logic and reason guide us to our explanations and to anchor all of that in mathematics so that uh, we can make predictions about the natural world so that we can understand what's going on. And that kind of thinking uh, that's a part of the scientific training at an undergraduate and especially graduate level it uh, can't help but infuse uh, my everyday life and everyday thinking and so so approaching things uh, questions with healthy skepticism uh, approaching questions with uh, curiosity and wonder and, and wanting to dig in just a little bit deeper to understand uh, uh, one more layer beneath and and to express that and find that and find the connections and find the causes in the relationships I think it is absolutely beautiful and fun and joyful and uh I, I find it a part of my everyday life and mm. I you know some people accuse science or scientists of 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 wanting to reduce um the world to like simple equations and, yeah. and there there's an argument that this removes beauty from the world like oh if you understand how the physics of a sunset yeah. then a sunset isn't beautiful anymore. <laughs> I think that's nonsense because uh, there's more than one way for a sunset to be beautiful and right. there's more than one way to appreciate the beauty of a sunset. I can mm. I can watch a sunset in oh. the pretty colors and in the light over over the horizon. I can appreciate that at the aesthetic level, and my knowledge of physics has not taken away um, my desire to take a picture of like every sunset and every sunrise I see because they're just so dang beautiful. But I also understand the physics of, of refraction and Raleigh scattering and and electromagnetic rays and optics and and the uh, radiation emitted by the sun and all that. And I appreciate the beauty there, too. And I see the underlying uh, structure within it and the relationships in it. And there's beauty there, too. So to me, science and physics doesn't uh, restrict beauty or take away beauty. It expands beauty it multiplies beauty. It brings more beauty into our world because you get to enjoy and appreciate things at multiple levels.
1: No, I mean, I'm I, I an advocate of that. I mean, um, I, I always say, imagine if you could know what the physics, you know, that happens behind sunset. That would really deepen, um, you know, the beauty that's that's there, actually. Uh, I mean, how do you ask questions? How do you even know that you are asking right questions? <laughs> that's a
2: fantastic question. I mean, uh, if that is even a correct question. Yeah, we don't. Um uh, that's one of the the uh, scary things about fundamental research is that when you're out there and you're asking some questions and you're developing a research paper um, or like a line of research, you're all alone there's no there's no uh, answer in the back of the textbook. There's no teacher to help you out, there's no, um, there's really nobody, there's you and your collaborators trying to answer this question and trying to get it some sort of sensible, hopefully publishable answer. You don't know if this is a blind alley, you don't know if this is a red herring, You don't know if this is some deep, fundamental, unsolvable problem of the universe that you will never, in uh, our entire generation of scientists, answer. You just don't know. And that's the scary part, uh, but also the fun part. You really do feel like, and I remember experiencing this from my own research, Hmm. you really do feel like you're out in the unknown, like some uh, explorer, Who's never been in a part of the earth before where you're like, well, if I go in this direction, yeah. I don't know. There might be an impassable mountain range right over the, the horizon. There might be a giant desert. There might be, uh, you know, a lush rainforest or perfect farmland. There might be uh, you know, a giant bear that's going to eat me. I don't know. And when you're doing research, when you're in the thick of it, you
1: simply don't know. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, I mean, could it be that in, in, in the physics realm, you know, in the astrophysics the realm, there are some widely accepted theories or known things about the universe that could actually potentially be wrong?
2: Well, basically everything. Because this is how science works. Uh, The fundamental tenets of science is that all of our knowledge is provisional. All of our knowledge is based on the current data. All of our knowledge is based on our current observations. And future observations can change that. Future observations can change our mind. That's part of another joy of science is that this isn't dogma. This isn't faith. This, uh, even though there is beauty and joy there too, mm-hmm. but in science, the joy comes from the uncertain. The, the fun and adventure comes in the fact that we don't know for sure, and that's mm-hmm. okay. And that you can just live in the void. You can live in the unknown. And know what you know now, based on current observations, and know that it might change, and then that's okay. You know, there's some things that we are relatively certain about that, yes, could change. But things like conservation of momentum, yeah, that's probably not going to go away. If it is violated in our universe, it's in some very exotic, high-energy process That we have simply not accessed yet. Um, And the rest of the time. Conservation is. uh, Sorry. Momentum is conserved and respected. There are other things. That we know are mysterious. And that we know we don't understand. Like dark matter and dark energy. Which combined take up more than 95% of the energy of our universe. (laughs) Right there. 95% ninety five percent of the contents of our universe are of a form unknown to modern physics, so right there we're confronting a giant mystery, and yes, we have some vague ideas of what dark matter and dark energy could be, and yes, those ideas are like definitely wrong hmm. Hmm. and it's And cold. I would say yeah. most uh scientific theories rests somewhere on the spectrum between dark energy
1: and conservation of momentum hmm. so so based on that can you say that um science is actually evolving and it's always ready to sort of devise any theory that turns out to be not 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 so true like did you say that
2: yes absolutely science is evolving i wouldn't uh, you know there there gets to be uh, the the ideal of science, which is uh, to be nimble and ready for new evidence. There's also the reality of science, which is it's practiced by human beings who do have biases, who do have axes to grind, who do have uh, loyalties and allegiances and jockeying for positions. And so the the reality of science is probably a little bit messier and slower Um and more human than yeah. the ideal of science, but the ideal of science is to be to be nimble and to pivot and to uh, change its mind, uh, the community of scientists to change their mind when there is enough evidence to warrant it and and not before and not later
1: so um, is there any weird discovery about the universe that that just doesn't make you sleep at night and um, can you please explain that for us? Is, is there any your favorite discovery or theory or anything, just weird thing you, that you know about the universe?
2: I mean, there, there's a whole list, which is what uh, kept me occupied for years as, as a full-time researcher, which, was, which is like all the mysteries of our universe. We do not understand dark energy. We do not understand dark matter. We do hmm. not er- understand the earliest moments of the Big Bang. We do not fully understand uh, black holes and how they operate. We don't fully understand uh, how active galactic nuclei work. We do not fully understand how mergers work. Like they, uh, (laughs) <laughs> we do not fully understand how galaxies evolved we do not fully understand how solar systems and planets evolved we do not fully understand uh, whether there's a life out there in the universe or how common or rare it is it's like you could just go on and on and on and on and it turns out that we live in a world of of mysteries and curious possibilities and that's what drives scientists. That's what drove me for years in research. Was hmm. was just uh, waking up ever more and being like, ah, dang, I don't know. I wonder if I, I wonder if I try this. We we might get some little interesting answer to the question."
1: Hmm. Wow. Uh, so so, how 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 do you how can you explain your research in in simple terms?
2: Yeah. So uh, my research has mainly focused on something called cosmic void which are uh, the biggest things of nothing in the entire universe. Uh, uh, I studied something at the very, very largest scales in our universe. When you zoom all the way out past the scale of the solar system, past a galaxy, if you took such a big picture that even individual galaxies are just tiny little points of light. Yeah. You see something surprising, and we didn't see this until the 1980s, when we had surveys powerful enough to reveal it, which is that galaxies in our universe are not scattered around randomly. Galaxies in our universe form a pattern. There is a structure there. We call it the large-scale structure of the universe. It's also called the cosmic web because it looks like a gigantic spider's web. There are long strings or filaments of galaxies there are broad walls of galaxies. There are dense knots that we call the clusters. And between all that structure is a whole bunch of nothing. These vast, empty deserts. Uh, we're talking these things are tens of millions of light years wide of just nothing. There is matter in there. there's some sprinkling of galaxies, but for the most part, they are empty we call these the great cosmic voids and so over the course of my research i became an expert uh knowing more and more about less and less until i was one of the leading world's leading experts on absolutely nothing
0: yeah
2: and uh in my work we we strove to understand the cosmic voids we strove to understand their structure uh, their shape their evolution Ah, uh, developing techniques to find them in in galaxy surveys in the real universe and compare it to theory. We use the cosmic voids to help us understand the growth and evolution of the universe. To help us understand uh, the nature of dark energy. Uh, yeah. To 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 be a probe of of cosmology itself. Of trying to understand all the things by by mapping out the nothing.
1: Mm, right. Um, I do know that you're you, you also involved in particle physics, right? Because um, you, you were just, uh, I think a few months ago, speaking about the, this new great discovery of muon G-2. Yes,
2: yeah, so I did a little bit of particle high-energy theoretical research um, in in the earlier part of my career. I was examining quantum fields and the nature of quantum fields. And... I still write about quanta, uh, uh, particle physics, quantum physics. Uh, the, these muon experiments are very intriguing. Like I mentioned earlier, science doesn't change its mind until yeah. there's enough evidence to warrant it. And these new results of the, of the G-2, which is just some magnetic property of subatomic particles, uh, they're intriguing. They're not enough to get scientists to change their mind, the results aren't strong enough by themselves, but it's enough to be intriguing and to wonder what's going on. And as to what is going on, the answer, you know, it could be because the results are like right there, not not super duper um, compelling. Yeah. It could be that there's nothing interesting going on. It could be that uh, there's, Something we need to learn about how we design our experiments for particle colliders and particle detection. We need to learn something there, or there could be that we need to learn something about how
1: the universe works. Hmm, that's 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 great. I mean, it was it was all the news about this great new discovery. So I I, I do know that there's uh, what's possible in theoretical physics, and you know there's sort of what's within reach in. In our engineers and what they can sort of build so so having that in mind, what can you say about time travel? <laughs>
2: uh, <laughs> I wish I could say more about time travel um, the this is this is again a thing where where we can say some things yeah but we don't really understand the origins of these statements we really don't understand why these statements are true uh, or if they're entirely true in general so we can say things like uh it appears that time travel into the past is forbidden that's you know we've tried a bunch of different ways to be able to travel into our own past or concoct at least theoretical ways to do it yeah in every way we do it uh is is thwarted there's some violation there is some rule of the universe that is broken and we don't understand. But we have no consistent theory. We have no consistent law. We have no consistent observations of why that might be true. We have no uh, fundamental set of equations that you can, say, put on a T-shirt to that we can point to and say, oh, yeah, this is why you can't travel into the past. So hmm. either... Time travel into the past really is forbidden. Yeah, uh, or it's not. Either way, the whatever answer it is will point to new physics. Because if it is allowed, we need new physics to be able to allow it. And if it's really truly not allowed, uh, we don't have the physics to explain why it is not allowed. So if we are able to say it's not allowed, uh, that will involve new physics. So time travel is one of these topics that no matter what, if it, no matter what the answer is, we learn something new about the universe
1: and we get new physics out of it. Yeah. Um, um, that's, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> um, uh, I want to know. So could, could it happen that, and, and, and I'm trying to go back to the point that you said, you know, when you speak about dance and stuff, it's just amazing on how, all of them sort of works together to with with the same objective that you obviously spoke about, and is that it's it's to understand the universe. So, could could you say that everything is really connected to the same goal, to the same you know a, a objective? Like everything, literally science, and and all the other uh, religion, you know, all of them that are really having the same objective. Could you say that?
2: I would say I would say the common goal. There is a common goal, which uh, humans have been pursuing ever since we've been humans, which is to understand the world around us and to explain it and to to put it on terms that we can understand and share and tell stories around the campfire. And uh, you know, religion, mathematics, philosophy, yeah. science, art, <laughs> dance these uh, these are all expressions of that common human desire to 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 come to terms with the universe and the world that we find ourselves in and science has turned out to be a very very successful and powerful way of describing the natural world around us. but it is by far not the only
1: way right so so well we know that there are people who i don't know i don't know if i should use the word believe you know, um, um, science deniers, let, let me say that. Um, so, so, uh, well, what can you say to them? Like, the yeah, flat earthers. Um, I just had a conversation with a flat earther. Um, so, what can you say, like, from an astrophysicist point of view about, about Earth?
2: Yeah, like, like the whole, yeah, for example, like the flat Earth thing. Yeah. Uh, the flat thing has nothing to do with the facts. It has nothing to do with the evidence. Uh, it has nothing to do with the way science works instead it has everything to do to with the way that science interacts with the public this hmm. is not the, the flat earth debate is really not a debate about the nature of the curvature of the earth we've known it's been curved for thousands of years yeah it's about scientific credibility it's about scientific trustworthiness it's about scientific authority
1: yeah
2: you know the most of the people that truly believe that the earth is flat um or deny global warming or don't want to get their COVID vaccine these are people who it's not about whether the science is presenting evidence they are not approaching the question from a point of view of, like, well, let's examine the evidence and let's see the rational arguments back. That's not where they're coming from. They're coming from a fundamental distrust of scientists and a fundamental distrust of science. Sure. And they're not exactly wrong to distrust scientists because scientists are human beings. Yeah. Scientists, some scientists have been. In positions of authority and abused that position of authority mm-hmm. some scientists have used their influence mm-hmm. and their authority uh in their respect to to marginalize certain groups to harm certain groups to to inflame mm-hmm. uh divisions between groups and the actions of some scientists to to marginalize people, to entrench uh, uh, abusive or oppressive systems, have caused some people to to distrust scientists, yeah. to distrust science itself. As in, where they don't see science as an independent investigation into the wonders and curiosity of nature, yeah. they see they view scientists and science as an arm of an authority. Uh, government or structure that they do not trust and so what i have to say to flat earthers and i have met several flat earthers and (laughs) anti-vaxxers is i get it i understand why you don't trust science i wish you did there are legitimate Uh, problems, some problems with the way that science operates in in the modern era and how scientists can be co-opted and used and bought off to to give results that powerful governments or corporations or entities want them to to give and to use the authority of science and and misuse the authority of science. Uh, But you can talk to me and maybe you can trust me. Yeah. As, as a human being, as a person, as your friend, as someone you're speaking to uh, right now. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you what about my own perspectives on the nature of the curvature of the earth. I can yeah. tell you about my perspectives on the safety and efficacy of a COVID vaccine. I, I can tell you about my own experiences. Mm. And maybe that's enough for you to change your mind. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. But in the meantime, we need to have a broader discussion about the role of science in society, mm. uh, how to rebuild trust, how to rebuild uh, respect, and to c- work to make sure that scientists don't abuse that respect and uh,
1: authority and trust yeah. um, that, that we've gained. Hmm. Um, just, just a few uh, last questions. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of distrust, um, what do you think could be the cause of that distrust? Uh, you know, could it be uh, maybe science being taught not in a good way or could it be, and I mean of course you also speak about, you know, some people really abusing their authoritative position. Uh, could it again be lack of education? What could be really some of the few reasons for, for that distrust in science?
2: Right, right. So, so let's look at, a, at an example. Let's look at, say, global warming. Yeah. Um, you know, this the, the evidence is there. Our Earth is getting warmer. It's getting warmer at a, an alarmingly high rate. It right. appears that the rate at which it's getting warmer is, is faster than is unprecedented in geologic history. Um, it, the evidence is pretty much there. And if this was just a discussion about the evidence yeah. and the nature of global warming, I think one, most people wouldn't even notice, just like most people don't care about, say, the debate over the expansion rate of the universe. Like no yeah. one really know, notice, yeah. knows that there's a big debate happening in that community, or mm. it would just be another random scientific fact. But oh. the fact that the earth is getting warmer yeah. has implications for human society. and agriculture and cities and 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 uh uh, spread of disease and all this and those uh consequences come with them policy implications we need to decide as a society what to do about it yeah so okay if the earth is getting warmer we need to figure out a how bad is it going to get b What are the effects going to be on on humanity and then see what what do we do about it now that we know all this? Well, (laughs) that just crossed over from, oh, an interesting like scientific discussion to a very serious and hard political discussion and what to do about it. Once it becomes a political discussion, yeah. it enters into all the messy realm of politics um, not that science itself isn't uh, is is pure and messy in its own ways, but but po- politics has its own level of messiness that I think yeah. we can all acknowledge yeah and then the science itself becomes a weapon, becomes a tool for the politics yeah it becomes like. Oh, no, we shouldn't. Uh, if, if you say, well, the Earth is getting warmer. And, for example, in response to that, we need a carbon tax because then we can reduce the amount of carbon. And yeah. so we can slow down the rate of warming. OK. Now that there's money involved, there's going to be people who uh, support a tax and then people who yeah. oppose the tax. Yeah. And the people who oppose the tax are going to say, oh, where are they going to go? Like, how are they going to make the argument? They're gonna, of course, they're going to say, well, the science is junk. We don't need the carbon tax because the earth isn't really getting warmer. And the scientists uh, are just saying that because they just want to support our political enemies. Like, of course, they're going to say that because that's a natural thing to say um, now that it's become weaponized. And so the science, the, the scientific advancement of understanding becomes weaponized, becomes politicized. And of course, you end up with a situation Where the people who support the, say, a carbon tax think the science is accurate and the people who don't support a carbon tax, for example, don't think the science is accurate because really what they're talking about is a carbon tax and uh, what should we do about it as a society. Um, But there isn't much to talk about there uh, or as a part of that broader discussion, they talk about the actual uh, scientific results. And scientists will play into this. There'll be scientists who say, oh, no, we can rerun this projection. And it turns out you don't need a carbon tax. Say, oh, we can do this instead. OK, when that becomes a political weapon or there are scientists who say, oh, yeah, we did this study in a carbon tax. You know, everyone chips in a little bit and we just yeah. reduce the warming by one degree, et cetera, et cetera. It becomes a political weapon. So scientists themselves mm-hmm. uh, participate in the political process and then you end up with half the population not trusting science
1: yeah um all right so, so one last question and um i see my battery is gonna go flat here i don't know if my producer is gonna help with charging this but you know um uh, we've been having a conversation and um there's been a lot of uh, you know discussion about science lacking entrepreneurship uh can you say something about that science lacking entrepreneurship uh
2: science lacking interpretation
1: uh, you know, um, entrepreneurship, I don't know if...
2: Uh, entrepreneurship, okay, yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> every scientist uh, is an entrepreneur at oh, yeah. heart. Uh, yeah, yeah. Every scientist is uh, the owner of a small business with one employee. Yeah. And they are trying to get grants. They're trying to get funding. They're trying to get revenue. They're yeah. trying to get results. What they generate is papers And in scientific knowledge and in exchange for grant money and trying to get grant money. And as they grow in their career, they try to hire students. They try to hire assistants. They try to build collaborations. They, they merge with other small companies uh, to produce a common product. They will hire people. Um, Science like science is not easy in modern (laughs) science. Yeah, it is not easy. Yeah, and there's a lot of scientists are uh, chasing after not a lot of money. Oh yeah, and trying to get, trying to get grant money, and it's highly, highly competitive. Um, and most scientists simply are not successful. The vast majority of scientists uh, earn their PhD, start off in a research track, and then
1: end up uh, somewhere else, uh, not doing science. Mm, right. Um, Dr. Paul, thank you so much for joining us uh, on The Void Show. I mean, uh, I really honor you and I wanna believe that you join us once more again um, when I invite you.
2: Absolutely. It would be so much fun.
1: Thank you. Um, do you have any last uh, words to share with us? Any words of wisdom?
2: <laughs> oh, just always stay curious. That's my stay scientific curious. motto. Well,
1: I'll keep that. <laughs> thank you.
0: us on instagram at activefm777 twitter and gab at activefm facebook at activefm forward slash triple seven as well as youtube at activefm and our website at www.activefm.co.za don't stop don't hesitate find follow and enjoy us on all our different platforms you don't want to miss out To the stars in the night sky, and I realize, I realize no matter how dark you're still burning bright, it's gonna be alright, it's gonna be alright. There's something on